Well, here we are on this windy Wednesday night doing what churches do. We gather together. We talk about some business at times. Mostly we have fellowship and we pray and we sing God's truth to him and to each other. We rehearse what we know to be true. We study his word. We take part of a little meal that he gave us uh, to help us remember him by. In some ways, this is just another Lord's Supper service. It's just the middle of another week. It's just the end of another long day. Perhaps you're tired. Perhaps it's been hard. But, you know, from another angle, this week is no ordinary week. In many church traditions, the week before Easter is it's called Passion Week. It helps the church think about that week before, the week that led up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, where the gospel accounts show us his passion in very slow motion fashion. They show us his passion and the, the drama with, with, with swelling anticipation. And so it's good to turn to a scene where that story of the cross is looming on the horizon, where focus is becoming ultra crisp in what Jesus came to do and who he is and what it matters and how we respond to it. And so though this is Wednesday, I'd like to turn our attention to something that happened on a Thursday of that Passion Week. Let's turn in our Bibles to John 13. John 13, let us reflect on our Savior's great love and humble servantry and his sacrifice. John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he'd loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I've done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know that these things, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And then skip ahead to verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Well, I said already that in some church traditions, this is called Passion Week, and we use that kind of language around here at this church. Uh, We'll have a Good Friday service in a couple of days. Uh, You may know some churches that use a, a church calendar, the church traditional calendar, even more than we do, and they might have a Thursday service on Passion Week. It's called Monday Thursday. That's not Monday Thursday, which would make no sense. But Monday Thursday with an A-U in there. And that word Monday comes from a Latin word which means commandment. You can hear mandate sort of in there. Commandment. And it's referring to John 13 where Jesus gave this commandment to love one another. There in John 13, he showed them what that love looked like. It looked like selfless service and sacrifice, and humility, and servanthood. I suspect that's what most of us think about when we bring to mind or reread John 13 and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We perhaps think that, yes, Jesus gave us an example here. Jesus wants us to imitate him here, maybe not literally, but but he gave one example of how to so selflessly love others and then later gave a command to love others that this is what this is all about here. He's giving us uh, a picture of how to live and how to love and how to think of ourselves in relationship to others. And who can deny that, that that's all true? I mean, Jesus uses the word example. He does command them to, to love and serve others as they've been loved and served. And who can deny that Jesus' actions here with the basin and towel and water is such a marvelous, beautiful picture of humility and servantry. But if that's all we see in these verses, then I think we're missing out on actually what is most central, what is primary, and what we need most from these verses. Now, we won't come to that right away. We'll come to that in a bit here. Keep your ears open for Keep your eyes open for what in this passage might go beyond just an imitation of humble service to others. Like most events in the gospel accounts, like most stories or scenes that we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, no matter else what else is happening, it's showing us something very important about Jesus. It's about Jesus. No matter who is in the story and what's happening in the story, and no matter how much we might want to relate to someone in the story or place ourselves there uh, quietly as an observer in the story, or perhaps even in John 13 to imagine ourselves to be the humble recipients of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, our story here is no exception Like many gospel accounts, it's about Jesus, 
First and foremost, it's about Jesus. This one is two. So let's first think about his hour. Everything's going to be his something. We've got five of these. There's his hour that we learn about in verses 1 through 3 as the stage is set. The scene opens sometime before the feast of the Passover. And more importantly, it's when Jesus knew that his hour had come. What hour? Well, of course, John will tell us in the very next few words if we'll read on. But we don't even need those words because John has been talking about Jesus' hour for chapters before. Let's just take a little tour here. Hour. This is an important thing for John. Turn back to chapter 2, verse 4 of John. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said to his mother, My hour has not yet come. It's not defined yet, but we know it's not yet in chapter 2. In chapter 4, verse 21, turn there. He told the Samaritan woman there that his hour is coming. In a sense, it is now and it is still coming. Fast forward to chapter 7, verse 30. Here it's John's words in his narration Chapter 7, verse 30, his hour had not yet come. Or chapter 8, verse 20, it's again John telling us that no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. You feeling this grow and swell with anticipation? Chapter 12, verse 23. Chapter 12, verse 23, here in the garden, these are Jesus' words. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, as he prayed? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. There in the garden he had come to the hour, and then chapter 13 opens, his hour had come. His hour had come, now John tells us, to depart out of this world and to the Father. So that's the hour, the departure the death and resurrection, and eventually the ascension of Jesus to the Father. It's like in Jesus' thinking, that's the event. And what comes before, it's not yet the event. And then once you get to the garden, and even more here in this upper room, it's the event, it's coming, it's right there. The writing is on the wall in this chapter. The signs are everywhere. Just in what we've read so far, notice verse 1, that he loved his disciples and he loved them to the end, to the finish. Verse 2, here's an ominous foreshadow. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Of course, that's no threat to God's plan. That was the rejection and betrayal that would lead to the cross, and that was God's plan all along. And so we get something of that in verse 3, that the Father had given all things into his Son's hands, and he had come from God. He was on a mission, and he was going back to God. Again, it's the incarnation, it's the cross, it's the resurrection, it's the ascension. That's his hour. 
The drama is building all around, and yet here in this little pocket of John 13, all the way to 17, really, it's a pocket of calm. The scene is that of a meal. Jesus alone with his 12 men. John 13 is one of the final meals, if not the final meal, if not the Last Supper. We don't know for sure. And what's about to happen next at this meal is sort of the focal point. It's what we would think of this chapter to be called. But notice, it is during the meal that Jesus gets up and does his famous foot washing. Verse 2, it's during supper. Verse 4, Jesus rose from supper. Now, John is subtly telling us something without telling us. What is he subtly telling us without telling us? Well, it's obvious to us once Jesus gets up and does what he does... Apparently, they had sat down to a meal without their feet being washed. Now, I know for most of us, that's no big deal whatsoever. You've got your stinky feet covered in socks and nice shoes. And I've never gone to the dinner table and my mom asked me, have you washed your feet, son? But in the first century AD, in the dry and dusty Middle East... When travel was largely done on foot, and those, foot, those feet barely covered, protected only by open sandals, walking upon streets where animals also walked. You ever been to a parade? What do animals do when they walk down streets? They don't know these are streets. They go. They let it go. It's a dirty place. It's a dirty place. These are dirty feet. So washing feet was not only necessary for polite company, but it was dirty work to wash feet, and it was lowly work to wash feet. The custom in those days was that people didn't wash their own feet, but someone else washed their feet, a servant, a slave. The custom was that this was reserved not just for any servant or any slave, but for the lowliest of a household. At least one Jewish tradition insisted that no Jew could ever wash anyone, anyone's feet. It was Gentile work in their mind. So do you see what happened here? Again, what John tells us without telling us is that these 12 came in with Jesus to a private room for a meal and no one thought himself to be the lowliest. Every one of the 12 thought someone else, at least one of the 11, should have picked up the basin and the towel, but not them. And in other gospel accounts, especially in Mark, we know that in the days before this, the disciples have been jockeying for place and prestige and power, and prominence in the kingdom of God. They've been stepping on each other left and right and mad when one gets ahead of the other. Jesus had been confronting that left and right. Every time they do it, he confronts it and explains that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world that freely jockey for power and position like that. No, Jesus had come to serve not to be served. And in Mark 10, 
Jesus gave those famous words there where he said that his death will prove what his kingdom is like. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, a payment unto death. So in John 13, we have something similar, but Jesus is going to show in another way how his kingdom ethics works and how this king is the kind of king that he is. So secondly, we see his washing, his hour, then verse four and following, his washing, he rose from supper. Now notice how John describes it with unusual detail. He slows it down like his mind might be replaying it all over again, so vivid still in his memory. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. Are you picturing this? Can you imagine the shock in the disciples' mind as they saw this happen, as they felt this happen to them? Jesus wasn't just one of the boys. He wasn't the lucky number 13 of the group. He was the master. He was the teacher. They had seen him do the miraculous. They had seen him subdue demons and death and disease and even even storms. They'd been in the mountain, at least some of them had, where he was transfigured in glory before them as he met with Moses and Elijah, the two stalwarts of the Old Testament. They had heard the voice from heaven. They may not get all of who Jesus is yet, but they know he's a real big deal. They certainly at least get that he is the Messiah, if not God in the flesh. Can you imagine their shock when he stooped? When he took on the the garment of the servant or the slave and got down on his knees, And began to wet these dirty, crusty, calloused feet. Began to wipe away the dirt that was there. To go between the toes, perhaps. To get them clean. Then to gently dry them off with a towel. Then the next foot. Then the next man. And the next. Until he got to Peter. Typical Peter here. He thinks that it's better to be righteous in resisting Jesus than to not. And so his words in verse 6, Lord, do you wash my feet? They're put as a question, and they are in the original, but it's really more of a protest than a legitimate question. Do you wash my feet? In other words, that's rhetorical. He's not expecting Jesus to say yes. But Jesus' response is gentle. It should be disarming. He's calling Peter, Peter in verse 7 to simple trust 
at least for now. What I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward you'll understand. That's not enough for Peter. Peter doubles down in verse 8. You shall never wash my feet. Literally in the original, it says something about eternity. Not to eternity. Not for a million years will you wash my feet. Never will it happen, Lord. And Jesus warns emphatically, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Are you getting right now so far that Jesus isn't just teaching humility here? He isn't just showing servantry here. He is not just giving an example. All of this is about their relationship to him and their understanding of him and whether they think they need him like they need him. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. This is not about dirty feet, is it? It's not that someone had to wash the people's feet and Jesus is now showing the disciples that it could have been any of them and instead it's him. No, instead Jesus is insisting that he must wash them or they have no share with him. They will not be part of him. So Peter backs off of his strong objections but he's still thinking little more than skin deep. Verse 9, Lord, not my feet only, but also my, my hands and my head. Who knows what he means here? Even sometimes Peter says things, and the Bible says he said this because he didn't know what to say. So I don't know what he means here. Maybe he means... Hey, if Jesus says it's good to get your feet washed by him, then just give me it all. Kind of like if, if 1,000 milligrams of vitamin C is good, it must be good to have 8,000 milligrams. And we know that's not good, is it? Or perhaps Peter is here starting in verse 9 to think that Jesus might be offering a new and better ritual cleansing. I can't go into the background of that right now, but that's partly, I think, in picture here. And, and if so, then it would explain how the language changes in verse 10. You can even see it in the English Bibles. In the ESV, you notice that verses 5 through 9, if you look down, the most common word there is wash, 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 wash. Then verse 10 and 11 switch to a different English word, a different Greek word to cleanse. Something changed there. So now third, his cleansing. He started just by washing, but he's going to move to a cleansing in verse 10 and following. If Peter is thinking, if a foot washing gets me a little clean, then a full bath gets me fully clean, at least for now, if that's what he's thinking, then Jesus is clarifying in what follows that the kind of cleansing that he came to bring isn't ultimately about feet or head or hands or even about ritual cleansings. He came to bring true cleansing and final cleansing. So you notice he says you can be completely clean with this cleansing. And you are clean. Peter was perhaps imagining full baths from Jesus whenever he needed cleaning, 
ritual or otherwise. And Jesus is instead insisting, you come to me for cleansing? That's it. Once for all, clean for good, washed away, no more baths. Again, the problem isn't dirty feet. The problem isn't a lack of manners. The problem isn't just about social hierarchies or pride even. The problem in this passage isn't merely selfishness, as if a little dose of unselfishness would somehow get them through. No, the problem is bigger than selfishness. Problem is bigger than trusting in religious ceremonies. The problem is deeper and more pervasive and more problematic than any of that. It's a heart issue. And Jesus is the only thing or the only one who can bring cleansing. Without him, you have no share with him, no part. You have to come to see that you need this kind of cleansing and you have to receive it. So now we're seeing that this foot washing business of Jesus is something like a parable. It's a well-loaded story. This foot washing experience was to expose the heart of the problem. They're jockeying for power and privilege in place. It was also to show them that the, the answer to that problem is him and him alone. It also showed that individually, each one of us must receive it. Eleven of your friends can receive it, and apparently you can reject it. That's what Peter did for a moment. He needed to receive it. He needed to see his need for it. And this foot-washing parable of sorts, it shows that when God works like this in this powerful, unseen, cleansing way, internal, deep cleansing, when he does that, it's once for all. It's good and it's done. This foot-washing parable of sorts looked back in the Bible. It, 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 the kind of cleansing that Jesus was talking about was there in the Old Testament all along. Let's just go look in a few places. Like Psalm 51. Psalm 51, that's a short one. Let me just read that. And you can turn to the next one in Isaiah 1. In Psalm 51, David said in his prayer, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Clean, washed white. Now listen to Isaiah 1. In verse 15, at the end of verse 15, Isaiah is preaching to sinful Judah and says, your hands are full of blood. So verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. Now they won't be able to do that. None of us can, none of us can wash ourselves clean. None of us can purify our sins. None of us can just say, no more sin. So that command to wash yourself and make yourself clean, it's really to drive them helpless and hopeless and to feel desperate 
so that they can hear the good news in verse 18 of Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In other words, he'll do it. He'll reason with you, but he'll do it. Look at Isaiah 36, one more. This is how John 13 is looking back to the Old Testament and that idea of being made clean. Isaiah, sorry, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, here's a promise of what's to come one day. We know it now. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, this is what Jesus came to do, to bring cleansing, that final end time God wrought cleansing down to the deep, not hands or feet or head or even whole bodies but heart change and heart cleansing. But Jesus' foot washing, back to John 13 now, it also looked ahead to what was right around the corner, right around the corner. Remember that the writing has been on the wall in this chapter, as we said. It is writ with large letters. Let's just review the writing on the wall. Remember the hour had come to depart out of this world through the cross and resurrection and through the ascension to go back to the Father. He loved his own to the end, to the finish. Remember what Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. God had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Jesus had come from the Father. He was going back to the Father it was then at that supper that Jesus laid aside his outer garments and picked up or take, had taken a towel, it says. I think John is wanting us to hear some bells be rung in our ears if we've been carefully reading the chapters that came before. Because in John 10, in John 10, Jesus said, I lay my life down and I take it up. The same verbs that are used in John 13 about Jesus, it would seem insignificant that he laid aside his outer garments and he took up the towel. should ring in our ears, I think. This section is absolutely chocked full of references and hints to the cross. If the foot washing was shocking and scandalous, because the master was doing the work of the slave, how much more the cross? The master, the creator, the righteous king at the hands of sinners was stripped bare and pinned through giant nails to a tree to hang there and die slowly, suffocate in the end. The word slave and cross 
in the first century went together about as much as anything else. Slaves were predominantly the ones who were crucified. It wasn't just for criminals, as you may have heard, but enslaved criminals. The cross wasn't for Roman citizens. It wasn't for wealthy Jews. It was for slaves. There was a scandal at the cross. And that's what Jesus was pointing ahead to. That's what Jesus was hoping in John 13 they would start to get to understand. Not yet, but eventually. Even by verse 12, he's asking them again, do you understand what I have done to you? You see that? We know from verse 7, they didn't yet understand. He says, you don't now know, but afterward you will understand. After what? After the cross, after the resurrection especially, after the appearances even more. Then, it's finally then, that all, all the numbers on the combination lock are lined up, and it opens. The safe opens, finally, with the cross, the resurrection, the living Jesus. It makes sense. They understand. That's his cleansing. Fourthly, let's talk about his example. His example now we're ready to hear something about Jesus as a model, as an example of humility in servantry. Now Jesus gets to that. Notice that. It's only once we get Jesus and get, get the fact that he was more than just a supreme example. Only once we get that Jesus is more than just a teacher and more than just a shower and more than just a servant, but also a sacrifice and the means for true cleansing it's only then that we can get on with his program and do what he does and act like he, act like he acts, serve like he served. If the teacher served like that, how much more his servants, right? If the messengers are lower than, than the one who sends them and the sender stoops to this level, not to mention what's coming a day later at the cross, then yes, look, look at that model. Look at it. The cross means you're cleansing if you believe this. But the cross also signals transformation. The cross in the New Testament is emblematic of your salvation, and it's also emblematic of your just your life, your living, your expectations in this world. That's why Jesus was taking up his cross and heading to Jerusalem. And that's why he also said, follow me, take up your cross with me. And so take a good long look at the foot washing, the slave-like service and humility of the King of Kings. Take a good long look at the cross and ask God to show you ways in which that needs to be seen more in your relationships with others and your love for others and your care for them in the pain you put up with. We only get a few verses of application like that in verses 13 to 17 before we're right back to where we started. Stuff about who Jesus is. 
what he came to do. What's looming on the horizon in the next few days. What's most important and what you need to do about it. So that's the last few verses that we'll look at. Verses 18 to 20. Fifth, we see his fulfillment. His fulfillment. Let's read on. Verses 18 to 20. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, that Judas will betray, that he'll go to the cross, that it was written in scripture. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I'm he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you understand what he's doing? Then believe. Look to the scriptures that Jesus promised would be fulfilled and were fulfilled. Jesus is no helpless victim here. He's orchestrating events for his own sacrifice for sins and resurrection on the third day. Believe. Receive. Receive Jesus. How, how Trinitarian is it in verse 20? You receive me when you receive the one I send, the Spirit. And when you receive me, you receive the Father, the one who sent me. Have you received this Jesus, his Father, his Spirit? Have you received his cleansing through his sacrifice and servantry? Have you come to believe that's your only hope? Are you still saying, not in eternity are you going to wash me as if you needed to serve me? I should serve you. I can give you things. I've got th some things that could help you, Jesus. I've got some things that you'd like that you might find useful in your kingdom. Still talking to Jesus like that? Or thinking that's how God works? When you come to your own self-end and find yourself above Jesus, being served by Jesus, feeling dumb about it, feeling embarrassed by it, and yet knowing it's your only hope that if he stops washing, you're dead. That if he doesn't wash you, body and soul, then there's no hope. You have no share with him. There's not something in between. I pray you've come to know that. Rejection is essential to who Jesus is. Do you have that kind of savior? The cross is central to who Jesus is. Are you embracing a different kind of Jesus? Peter at first rejected it, but he came to see his need for it. Not Judas. Not Judas. Judas is here as a painful reminder that some get close to Jesus, get friendly with Jesus, spend time with Jesus, and they don't have Jesus. They don't identify with him for good, and he doesn't give him a share with himself. Let's pray for perseverance. Let's pray to cling to Jesus, believing that he clings to us. Let's 
believe that when he cleanses, he cleanses for good. We don't have to keep going to him for washing. We go to him in confession, and we do need to keep doing that. Confession isn't about keeping our slate clean with him, because that's already clean. But confession is being honest with him about our sin, not hiding it or pretending it's not there or that we don't need a Savior. That's what confession is. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. To remind ourselves again that we are sinners. To remind ourselves once again that he did die and he's not here. He's raised. He's at the right hand of the throne of God. He intercedes for us even now. And so it's settled. Keep believing, keep trusting, keep clinging to him. What great love he has for us. He loved them and he loves us to the end. What great honor has been given to this Jesus. All things have been given into his hands. What great humility we find in this Jesus to go from the reception of all things into his hands from the Father directly to then stooping over a bowl upon dirty feet and washing and drying and washing and drying and washing and drying. Though he was God and though he was equal with God, he emptied himself, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. He took on the form of a servant and he became in the likeness of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's why God now has highly exalted him and has given him a name that's above every name so that in his name, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to, glo to the glory of the Father. So let us bow. Let us believe that that's his path. Humble, Suffering, but not forever. Glory, glory to come. Christian, can you hear Jesus' words in your own ears tonight, knowing that this, in some ways, applies to more than just what Jesus said when he said, What I'm doing now, you do not understand. It's not just true for the disciples who were in that trial of his imminent death and the mystery around it. We know what he was doing. Thank God that is settled for us. We know what he was up to. We know what he meant when he talked about coming from the Father and going back to the Father. We know what the foot washing was all about. It wasn't about stinky feet. We know, but we don't know everything. And his word in other words, at other places, at other times, says this much to us. You do not understand what I'm doing. And you might later on, and you might not. But it's okay. You can trust him. It would be good for some of us to just thank the Lord for his kindness in that word. You don't understand what I'm doing. And it would be good for us to remember that that came in this context of sweet 
humble serving Jesus on his knees upon dirty feet. What a savior we have. What a cleansing it is. It's once for all. Now we have the assurance of faith, Hebrews says. Our hearts are sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies are washed with pure water. 